0: Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm, click the support button, and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So, yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert if you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic To Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Sergeant York from 1941 with my distinguished guest, Sarah Royce. Welcome to Talk Classic To Me. Our guest this week is Sarah Royce. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This week we watched Sergeant York from 1941. Full disclosure, I had never seen this movie before last night. Sarah, what are your your thoughts?
1: I had seen this movie before, but it was long enough ago that I really did not remember any of it I have issues with certain things but I don't know a good old American rah-rah story about a soldier who does incredible things and overcomes all kinds of odds I mean I was I'm a sucker for that I I liked it a lot and Gary Cooper I mean you can't go wrong with him ever I mean he's he is great I feel like um at first this was my journey with it
0: as we know I think if you know me and watch movies with me You know that, like, my go to, my taste is not gonna be like, yes, a war film. Like, I'm never gonna be like, sign me up for that. I typically don't really care about any sort of macho films in general.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: That's just not what I gravitate towards. So, I think that's probably why I never saw this, because I was like, Sergeant York, that's gonna be a war picture. Nah, I'm good. The first like 20 minutes, I was a little bit concerned. I was like, oh, no, is this a dud? Oh, God. Um, Because this is, I will say, this is not a subtle picture. Oh, no. Um, No, no, no. No subtlety. They're putting it all out on the table. But at first, it's very much like... um, they, it's like you're in three rivers or I don't remember what it's called. You're in the three rivers valley in Tennessee. And it's like this place that's not connected to any cities. It's like a three day mule ride to get there from Nashville. It's very much its own like sequestered place with a lot of like country folk being like, I done did it. I'm a done gonna go to the church. And you're like, Oh God. So at first you're like, is it going to be this for two hours? Like, I don't know that I can do this. And, um, it's like, you know, a little heavy handed with religion, um, but then it kind of works its way out of it charms you. It charms you. It's a 1940s biopic about a war hero from World War One. Um, mm. It's very pretty to look at. It's got a feisty lady, which I'm always going to enjoy. yeah, um, it, it, it like it gets better as it goes. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to feel just enjoyable and sentimental it's sweet it's delightful it's fun you're gonna have a good time at the movies it's no nonsense directing style enjoyable and straightforward and I feel like that's Howard Hawks right there what I think is also really interesting Sarah and I had kind of talked about this a little beforehand when I asked her if she wanted to do this movie with me she was like yeah this movie's like straight up propaganda and it it is it's like Kind of american propaganda to get people feeling patriotic and excited to like fight for their country even mm-hmm. though like world war ii hadn't happened when they were filming it for americans like it was happening in
1: europe i think when jesse lasky first latched onto the idea of making a biopic about sergeant york i mean hitler wasn't even a thing yet I'd, i'm not 100 percent certain on how long this movie was in development but at the start it may have just been like we're in a Great Depression. Everything sucks. People are really struggling. So, you know, here's an uplifting picture to get everyone happy for, you know, two hours. But as development went on, there's stuff happening in Germany. The war starts. And so and then this comes out in 41 before Pearl Harbor even. So, yeah, it ended up landing at just the right moment. Well, and what I was reading, too,
0: is that this movie had been released just a few weeks before Pearl Harbor. So that when Pearl Harbor happened, this was the biggest hit of that year. People were flocking to this movie and then going to enlist after they saw this film. So yeah, this movie is very uh, proud to be an American. And I think it's also like the quote unquote like American tale of you're just watching a regular guy who could be just like you. But with hard work and determination, he, you know, built up this idea, built up farmland. And he was good at shooting. And his just basic hunting skills helped him... Win world war one over in Germany.
1: It's a very Horatio Alger story. The quintessential boy who comes from nothing works his way up to being a hero and gets everything he wants in life. I'm gonna do um a quick plot synopsis. I'm gonna
0: try to not make it the entire time because what I did last week was <laughs> I just did the plot synopsis for about an hour. So we're not gonna do that this week. <laughs> to be fair, it was an affair to remember and come on, it's so I mean, good. I mean, you get a pass for that, obviously. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, I just want to relive it. Allow me to do that. Thank you, folks at home. Um, okay, so Sergeant York. It's about um, Alvin C. York, who is a real war hero and whose Wikipedia page, by the way, he looks very dashing and handsome. He has, like, incredible hair and a mustache. He's mm-hmm. a mustachioed gentleman. So that cracked me up a little bit to see, like, the real the real guy who had, like, eight children in real life, which we don't even get to that in the story. Anyway, okay, so Alvin C. York real life tale. I don't know a lot about the real Alvin York, so this is what we learned from the movie. He's from like small town, Tennessee, not very well educated. Daniel Boone is huge over there. Daniel Boone is like kind of the, your idol in that region. So he, he's, you guys, you guys, one of the opening scenes is that we're in a church and we see a pastor with gigantic eyebrows preaching to his what are they called Con- congregation <laughs> Congregation. I'm, I'm jewish we don't know these things <laughs> preaching to the congregation and then um outside we hear a ruckus it's a ruckus and it's like men shooting on horses and they're drunk which all seems like a terrible idea but one of the drunk people is so good at shooting that he leaves his initials in the trees so that they know who did it oy vey. and guess what spoiler alert it's alvin york So early on, we learn he's got a drinking problem. He's good at riding horses, and he shoots real good. Those are three things we know right from the top. And he's not religious. Four things we know. So he um, has a family who cares deeply about him, a terrifying mother who we're going to get into. She scares me. Sarah, we're going to (laughs) talk about it later. She's not meant to be scary, but I was getting such creepy vibes from her. Um, So he has this family. They really care about him. They want him to stop drinking. One night, he's at the bar. He gets fall down drunk. He gets into a big brawl. His little brother comes with a gun and is like, "Ma wants you. You gotta go to Ma." And so then he's like, "Well, I guess I have to go home to my mother." So he goes home and he helps with like the crop and stuff. And the pastor tries to be like, "Hey, dude, be religious." And he's like, "I don't know about that." Um. So they're out fox hunting. He sees a beautiful woman. He's like, "Oh, I want to marry her. I really want that." So he goes and he's like, "Hey, lady." he like fights off her suitors and he's like hey lady uh we're gonna get married and she's like i don't know wanna you're a trouble, sir and i'm like are you italian are you country i genuinely your (laughs) accents are awful all of you um so he's like well i'm determined now this lit a fire in me i'm determined and he decides he wants to buy bottom land of a farm because it's real good for soil i don't know farming but that's what he says And so he works really, really hard for two months, like night and day, takes everything he can, every shift he can. Um, He's a few bucks short the day of the big buying. And um, the man's like, well, I guess I'll give you to Saturday to pay me. But like no promises because, you know, he's going to enter a shooting contest. Spoiler alert, as we always know, he wins the shooting contest, has the money, is going to go pay the guy. And then the guy's like, sorry, I, I sold your land. I, I didn't wait till Saturday. Like I said, I would, I sold your land. Sorry about it. And um, not only that, I sold it to your rival of the girl's affection that you. Zeb
1: Andrews. Zeb
0: Andrews, great name, Zeb Andrews. And so he's like, well, doggummit, it, what did I do all that work for? So he goes and gets drunk. And on his way home, he gets struck by lightning. True story? No, I don't know that that's true at all. No, it's it's not. Why did
1: they add that in the movie then? <laughs> what a fucking weird thing to do. They wanted like a quick and easy to understand conversion moment for him. Like that's the moment that he becomes a Christian and he turns his life around. But in real life it was a lot messier. Like it happened over a period of time and it wasn't as cinematically dramatically interesting as getting struck by lightning. That's weird, okay? That's such a weird thing to throw in your movie. It's an, a very on-the-nose metaphor.
0: Yeah, the, the Howard Hawks, very straightforward. They're not going to mince words about this. They're just, we're getting right to the point.
1: He comes to Jesus through lightning. They
0: don't show like the actual lightning thing. They show lightning hitting a tree near him. And then the next shot is like mud. And his gun on the ground and his gun is burned up. And he's on the ground and his horse is on the ground. And I was like, oh, please do not have hurt that horse. Please let the lightning not have killed that horse. Yeah. But everybody gets up him the horse the gun stays there because it's broken they
1: all get up
0: and he sees a church so he like walks into church he's
1: religious now that's the change in his life and i mean that's a big deal because in evangelical christian faith like that moment of conversion of finding jesus is a big deal so like they have this whole moment and they're like clapping and they're he's
0: on his knees and I was like okay I guess this is what people did or do or I I really don't know so he's religious now and it actually does improve his life which is nice that's really good for him and um he gets very well versed in the Bible and he becomes like kind of a pacifist but then the war happens World War One happens and he's like, oh, no, I don't want to fight in this war. I'm a pacifist. The Bible says, like, they, they don't ever say the Bible. He just says, like, and the book, right? Yeah. Don't they never so. say the Bible? So he's like, it says thou shalt not kill. And I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty valid point. Um, and th- the army's like, well, this is the army. So like, I don't know, you can be a conscientious objector, but like, sir, at some point, you may have to kill someone. And he's like, oh, I don't know. He goes into the army he meets people that are totally different from him which I love I love that they end up having kind of awareness about this weird accent and like he meets like a guy from the Bronx named pusher who's like absolutely hilarious comedic relief in some moments when you're like oh my god is everybody dying oh let's give the Bronx guy a one-liner in this giant war scene so he meets that guy he meets like a just a normal white guy named Bert. um I mean no people of color in this film I'm just gonna put that out there like 2021 lens this is a white a very very white film um so yeah he meets all these people that are different from him he's not like bigoted or a dick about it which is nice they
1: Mm -hmm. all get
0: along um and his like higher ups are like well this guy's a really really good shot we're gonna need him to like not be a conscientious objector we're gonna need him to fight so like how do we do that and the main guy's like I've got it let's send him home for 10 days and when he comes back he'll fight And that works. He goes home and he has this really cool scene that's really beautiful with a beautiful background. And he's got like the Bible and the history of the United States. And he keeps going back and forth in his mind about like, what do I do? God, country, God, country. So that's a cool scene. And he comes back and he's like, look, I'll do it. I'll be a corporal. I'll fight in your war. I'll do it. So they go to Europe and the going's rough and there's this one day in Germany and I should mention I do not know a lot about World War One. I'm so sorry I don't
1: oh we can talk about that we can okay talk about
0: that. good because I'm like I don't I don't know um so they're in Germany there's the battle I don't know and there's like a machine gun <laughs> nest and he only has like eight men in his troop or a squadron or platoon or whatever it's called and pretty much single-handedly he takes down a machine gun nest just by like knowledge of hunting and stuff and like gets a bunch of like 132 germans to surrender or something like that yeah pretty much by himself his buddies all die though and that's really sad it's a bummer when pusher gets killed and you're like oh that was really sad um so he brings them all back and um becomes a war hero when he goes home and they're all like here have money for being a war hero and he's like no i don't want to earn money for this like dudes a lot of people died and like this that doesn't feel right to me but then he goes home and the government has built him a house his dream house and on his dream land and he gets his dream girl and they run to the house together And some cool notable moments, I think, are, I love his battle of, like, God versus country of, like, I don't want to kill people because I think war movies and war war in general gets people so, like, I'm going to kill all the Germans. I'm going to, like, it gets them in this weird headspace of, like, don't you understand that there's another life on the end of that? So um, I like that he has that dilemma and I really loved his reasoning at the end when they were like, well, what made you change your mind about, like, killing people? And what he says is basically like, I could see how much harm they were doing with their guns. So if I got them to stop shooting those guns, I stopped the harm is essentially what he says. And it reminded me a lot of this idea of like having zero tolerance for intolerance.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what it
0: reminded me of. Like, No, you cannot let Nazis and white supremacists spew hate. You cannot allow that. They're trying to be like, free speech, free speech. But the thing is, like, any talk like that cannot be allowed in our society. In it a cannot tolerant be allowed.
1: society,
0: yeah. In a tolerant society. You have to nip that stuff in the bud because that is not, that only leads to destruction, damage. It is not okay. So that was kind of what I took from that part. Um, yeah, there are, there are really good moments in this film. I, I don't want to shit on this movie because I actually, by the end, really enjoyed it. And I was also realizing I prefer biopics from the past to biopics now. Really? I'm not quite sure why, but old biopics are just so like tied up in a beautiful bow and a little bit ridiculous. And we don't really know the people that they're talking about. Maybe that's my trouble with biopics now, is when I watch them now, I'm like, that's not it. That's not the person. That's not what it was like. This is a lie. But then when you watch them from really, really long ago, you're like, well, I don't know anything about Sergeant York. So this is just like a character. <laughs>
1: there was kind of a, uh, a trend for a while in the 30s of biopics. Like they did Madame Curie. Emile Zola, Louis Pasteur, Wilson, uh, President Woodrow Wilson. That, although that was a little bit later in like the 40s.
0: Well, and then in the 40s, they get to American heroes because that it's like Yankee Doodle Dandy, Pride of the Yankees, Edison the Man and Edison the Boy. So yeah, you're right. There's like this string of biopics that come out around the time. I never put that together. And it's like ranging eras. What I was noticing a lot about this era too is that a lot of nostalgia movies come out like during the war and right before the war and the nostalgia movies are like based around World War One and World War One accomplishments so I was thinking of this I was thinking of like for me and my gal the Judy Garland movie with Gene Kelly where they kind of show us like music from the past, good times from the past, but then someone going off to war and succeeding in a war environment and coming home and like getting what they want, th- that like feeds into the, the propaganda essentially of this film. And it's not necessarily negative propaganda. I did think it was interesting. Like they're talking about the history of the United States, but they're only including the good stuff. And I think it's so fascinating that now from like 2021 perspective, we're like, no, you have to include all of it. How can you learn? How can you grow? How can you change? How can you make amends if you're not getting all the information? Like no one's perfect. Everyone's history has some major messed up stuff in it. You should also address that because this is just straight up sugar-coated history of like, everyone was perfect. Everything is perfect. All men are free. Yay. You know? Yeah. Uh,
1: White men are free. It's interesting because like, the 20th century is seen as the american century because that's kind of when the u.s becomes a world power and that had been kind of building over the course of the late 19th century with all of our manufacturing and industrial might we were like raking in so much cash we became a wealthy nation and powerful figure in global politics although there was this overwhelming sense at the same time though that we had to stay isolated like we were separate we did not get involved in other stuff. We did our own thing. That was kind of the stance before the US got into World War I. I wanted to ask you, so like, what do you remember from like high school history class about World War One? Thank you for asking. So
0: actually, I don't even think we covered it in high school. World War I was like middle school territory. World War I was like seventh grade where we also covered Gandhi. So that's a very interesting hmm. like world studies class just thinking out loud so yeah we talked about world war one way back then if you were like Sarah tell me anything you know about world war one I'd be like okay it ended in 1918 (laughs) um it started because of an assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand uh-huh. So many people died. Wait, we also talked about it in freshman year of high school, too. I'm remembering that now. But we I feel like we started – the. when I remember it was – none of this matters. Okay. Um, but yes, so many men died, and it was seen as a war that was kind of for nothing. Like, there – I don't know the value of fighting that war. I don't know what we were fighting for. Like, World War II, very clear. We were fighting the Nazis. We all know what we were fighting about, right? Yes, World War One. Yeah. I'm like, what were we fighting about? World power? People wanted power?
1: I thought that was really interesting that that's even in the movie. Like, York's sister asks their mom, like, Ma, what are they going off to fight for? And she she's like, I don't rightly know. Yes. And it's like, they put that out there. Like, what what was World War One? It is really interesting, and I think... I mean because the US was only involved for a short time I think maybe it, that's why it kind of we kind of skim over it in our history classes because we were only in it for less than a year and I'm not even going to pretend to know all of the politics and machinations that led to World War 1 but in the early 20th century there's all these sociopolitical tensions in Europe. It's kind of the old guard falling away and like the working classes are starting to gain some power. They are the ones who are actually working in all the factories and coal mines and whatever. So there's a lot of tension already in, in Europe building and all of the kingdoms and countries in Europe start lining up behind each other. Like, hey, if anyone comes after you, attacks you, we've got your back. there's all these alliances being formed. The assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is kind of the the match that lights the whole thing on fire. And so Franz Ferdinand was from Austro-Hungary, an empire that no longer exists. And he was assassinated by a Serbian student. I think he belonged to a group that wanted a free Yugoslavia, uh, you know, an independent country of Yugoslavia. And so you have the Serbians... And their allies all start lining up on one side. And then Austria-Hungary on the other side with all of their allies, you know, including Germany, start lining up on the other side. And Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in June of 1914. By August, the war has begun. I mean, it happens so fast. It goes to show you just how high tensions were before that moment. Like, that was the thing that set everything on fire. And millions died, like it was a bloody, bloody war that ripped all through Europe. And it was, it was a nightmare, but the U.S. I mean, it's not that it wasn't on their radar, obviously they knew what was happening. And there's even that one shot in the movie where in the little town of Pall Mall, where Alvin York lives, they get the newspaper from the next big town. And there's some big headline on the front page about the war in Europe and they just totally overlook it. So it's not like we weren't aware that the war was happening. It's just, it was, it was their problem. It's not our fight. And even when Woodrow Wilson was up for re-election in the 1916 presidential election, he campaigned on a platform of uh, non-involvement. He's like, I promise if you elect me president, that I will keep us out of the war in Europe. Wow. It's great having a historian on the show. Yes, please continue. Well, so first of all, and I'm sure you've heard of the Lusitania.
0: Oh, I have. Yes, I've heard of the Lusitania.
1: Yes. Yeah. So the Lusitania was a passenger ship that had dozens of US citizens on board and it was torpedoed by a German submarine as part of their unrestricted submarine warfare, which is one of the tactics they used. But even that, like the Lusitania sinks with Americans on board and even that isn't enough. I mean, it pisses off some people and they're like, we gotta do something about this. But the overwhelming consensus is still, no, it's not our war, stay out of it. That changes with, here's another term you probably will trigger you from high school history class is the Zimmerman telegram. Do you remember that?
0: Actually, no. No, I don't remember that at all.
1: I weep a little bit for our, uh, and our school <laughs> curriculum that we both went through. So the Zimmerman telegram is a telegram that was sent from Germany to Mexico. It was intercepted by British intelligence. And in it, Germans are telling the Mexicans, just a heads up, Germany had suspended unrestricted submarine warfare for a while, but they were bringing it back In February of 1917, they were telling Mexico, just a heads up, we're going to start torpedoing with our submarines again. It's possible that if we do this, it's going to finally trigger the U.S. to come into the war. If that happens, we want you to join us on our side, declare war against the U.S., and Germany will make sure that Mexico gets back its territories that are now like Texas, Arizona, that whole southwestern part there that used to belong to Mexico and so america hates germany but they also hate mexico and so that is kind of the tipping point wow so racism fueled our Uh, our desire to get into the war wow protecting the southwestern part of the us so so that the telegram is intercepted like and you know decoded in january 1917 And Wilson kind of goes back and forth for a while and there's some people who are like is this a real telegram or was this planted is it fake the conspiracy theorists oh they they never die but the guy from Germany who sent it like comes forward and confirms like yeah the telegram is real and so Wilson goes to Congress and asks for articles of war and they declare war officially in April of 1917 and that's when the U.S. joins the war this is hard to talk about because I have ancestors who fought in World War I, and it, it is a clusterfuck. It's really bad. It's so much bloodshed. And so much of it is totally unnecessary. Because at the moment that they declare war, the standing U.S. Army is tiny. Tiny. So they need to do this draft, which they touch on in the film. All men between the ages of 21 and 31 have to register for this draft, and they're going to be subject to potentially getting conscripted into joining the Army. And they have to do this because they, you know, Wilson has made all these grand promises about troops and supplies and food, all the stuff that they're going to send over to Europe. But then he's like, kind of washes his hands of it. He's not really interested, even though he is the commander in chief of the United States military. He's kind of like, yeah, you know, I made all these promises. Now it's up to you guys to see him through and make them happen. Ooh. And so there's all these men that literally like plucked off the street. A lot of the men had never even touched a gun. That's kind of what makes Sergeant York or you know Corporal York at the time. It kind of gives him the edge because he's actually used a rifle before and so many of the, the men in his unit had possibly never even seen one.
0: It's so interesting that you bring that up. First of all, all of that is interesting. And I am realizing how little I really do know about so much. Like, I don't know anything about Woodrow Wilson except that his name is Woodrow Wilson and he was president during World War One. That's about it. So thank you for all of that. I, it struck me how callous the training people were being with the men and how rude they were being about Sergeant York, um, who again was not even Corporal York. He would have been private York who look at that knowledge. They don't respect him until they learn he, they learn he can shoot because he is a conscientious objector mm-hmm. and they're like, well, that's useless, what a useless thing to be someone who objects to war and then they're rude and mean to the people they're training like the brooklyn guy pusher instead of being like well you don't want to have your thumb up because you're gonna jam yourself in the eye they're like no do it shoot with your thumb up and i was like he could have like lost
1: his eye and then where would you be they were such dicks to all of the So the men. one thing they don't bring up at all with the whole conscientious objector thing is they don't talk about like all the anarchists and socialists who objected to the war in the U.S. They're all these Emma Goldman types who are like, no, stay out of the war for a myriad of reasons. And so a lot of them, the the men in those political movements who would have been subjected to the draft are like, no, I don't want to fight. I refuse to fight for, you know, you capitalist pigs or whatever. And so that's (laughs) why I think that's part of why. Oh, so it's just the subtext of it. It's not just the sense that, oh, a conscientious objector, you know, that's like a Quaker or an Amish guy who doesn't want to fight, you know, because it's totally against the pillars of their faith. You also have under that conscientious objector umbrella, all of these socialists and anarchists as well. So Whoa. Sarah, thanks for adding a whole layer to that. He apparently has that taint on him, like, oh, conscience objector. He's a troublemaker. But it's kind of like if you talk to him for five minutes and hear <laughs>
0: anything he says, you're like, oh, a simple, simple man. Oh, shucks. Yeah. The tone of the film is so interesting because we have this, like, setup of, it's, a, it's comedic a little bit, and it's very sweet, and it's very wholesome and heartfelt. Even when they're drinking and being rowdy, it's wholesome and heartfelt. But then you get to the war scenes, And they are not joking around. We go to the war and we see the war. We see people dying. We see. The body count. It's machine guns, it's explosions. We are really put into that world for about 20 minutes. And it's really jarring compared with the rest of the film. But also, I think it's good that we have the juxtaposition of mm-hmm. it, like the contrast of that. And I also know that, like Howard Hawks, the director, they mentioned right up front, like Gary Cooper gets top billing before the name of the film. But right after that, before anyone else is named, this says a Howard Hawks production. This is Howard Hawks, this is his film and he fought in world war one and i know that he trained pilots so i think this was a very personal thing for him i don't think he he fought for a very long time he got into training pilots and i know he, according to him he was like itching for action so he wasn't really like sergeant york i personally figured that his friends would probably die because they were comedic and lovely and we need to see what what was lost so i wasn't shocked by his friends like dying necessarily but yet yeah, he's one of the only guys that we meet that makes it out everyone else perishes and it's a pretty dramatic stark contrast to the rest
1: of the film yeah it goes back to the fact that we were coming in this so late like the rest of europe had been fighting since 1914 there are trenches that have been dug scarring the whole french countryside and uh they're everyone they're all battle weary the french and the english that they encounter and all these fresh-faced doughboys coming in had no clue what they were stepping into. And they were, honestly, they were not prepared for it at all. And
0: it's funny that they handle that part comedically because it's like they meet the British guys and the British guys are like, drop down. They're kind of being silly about it. Like you'll get to learn the ropes once you're here for a bit. And then almost immediately after that, like slightly light moment, someone is killed. Like one of our friends on screen is killed by a stray bullet. You're like, oh wow, this got serious really quickly.
1: I don't actually know if there would have been like British soldiers in the trenches with the US troops because I mean at that point the original idea was that the the Doughboys, which is the nickname for the US soldiers coming in, they would be like auxiliary and support troops for the the British and the French soldiers that were already there, but Pershing, who was the commander of the American expeditionary forces, he was like, no, we are not anyone's sidekick. We're Americans. We're going to do our own fighting. So it's possible that the presence of those you know, a handful of British soldiers in that one scene is just a nod to less so to World War One reality, more to 1941 reality, where Britain had already been at war with Germany since 1939. They, you know, London had been bombed, and you know they had been under attack for a couple of years at that point already. Just as a kind of nod to the U.S.'s future allies in World War II.
0: Sarah, you're so smart. It's so good. Thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about for a second, like Gary Cooper in general, how he's appealing to both men and women on screen. He's really universal to everybody. But there's this idea, this trope that happens a lot in like masculine kind of centered movies. And I, I didn't mind it so much in this one, but there are genres based on this of like the lone man... That goes out and does it all by himself. And he's just a regular guy like you. I touched on this earlier. And he saves the day with the skills he already had, just being a regular guy like you. And I was thinking of like Die Hard, or like, which I actually enjoy. So, you know, Die Hard, because it's got feminist undertones, as we discussed at Christmas, me and you separately. Um, (laughs) The whole point of the film is that he learns to communicate and becomes a better man and will become a better husband to his wife. Just saying. Anyway, so yes, there's Die Hard, but then there's like all those Liam Neeson movies that came out, like Taken, The Commuter and Taken <laughs> and all of that. And so I read, this, I read this article once that was completely fascinating to me about how men's fears, like men, in, and I'm just generalizing here. Like this is not, I'm not trying to put anybody in a box. This is just like generalization psychology of like men's biggest fears tend to be things like humiliation of being laughed at when they're trying to like put themselves out there you know what i mean Like they're just afraid of being laughed at and being humiliated and on the flip side like a lot of women's fears are more like physical like bodily harm being raped being harmed these bigger deeper kind of things Mm -hmm. i feel like movies like this for men are kind of like what rom-coms are for women because when people are like First of all, stop talking shit about rom-coms, people in the world, like stop degrading them because like women are the stars of them and you think they're silly and stupid. What I like about rom-coms are that they tend to be stories about women where the woman gets everything she wants. So that's why I like rom-coms. And so I think this is the flip side of that, where it's like when I'm watching a rom-com, I'm watching a woman who is not in harm, who is not in bodily harm. She's going to get everything she wants. Whereas a man, when he's watching a movie like this, he's getting like, this guy did it. He was no one laughed at him. Like he he did the strong male thing, and he was not ridiculed for it. He was lauded for it. I don't know. I think it's like that escapism for for men, kind of.
1: He put himself out there, and he succeeded, and everybody was happy and lived happily ever after.
0: So yeah, that's been like my interesting viewing of the two kinds of things. Cause I get really pissed off nowadays, just aside note when people shit all over romantic comedies. I'm like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, not everyone is golden, but sa- you have seen even Seagal action movies out there don't tell me those are good like, <laughs> you know what I mean we tend to put like action movies on a higher pedestal like rating wise than we do romantic comedies and I simply think it's because men are into them and men make them yep. and men tend to critique things so I just wanted to put that. I mean out there. yeah,
1: he's definitely like a like I said, a Horatio Alger rags to Riches story. One man takes on the German army and succeeds. And we
0: could talk about too just Gary Cooper in general, his universality. universe has what is that word? Universality
1: universality one of those words universality he's wonderful oh i first came across gary cooper when i was a teenager um seeing him in mr deeds goes to town and one of the things that's remarkable about him is that he is one of the few actors who successfully managed to transition from silent films to talkies and that's really apparent in the way that he acts too
0: well you are the person that pointed that out to me Um, I remember years ago, we watched Meet John Doe together, and I I like Meet John Doe. It's not one of my favorites, but I like it. And you had mentioned this at the time of like, oh my God, look how expressive his eyes are. Look how expressive he is when he's silent. And it's because he was a silent film star. Mm -hmm. But I was realizing today, I think the reason he was able to keep his career so well after that was because he got into silent films so late. Like his first big hit as a big movie star was a talking film. Right. So I think... It was like he was so on the cusp
1: of it that he wasn't just known for being a silent film star. It's like he did his apprenticeship during this like dying gasp of the silent era.
0: Well, and I think The Virginian, too, is his first big like talking movie star role. And um, he got it essentially because he was from Montana and could ride horses. You know, like he looked comfortable on a horse. Yeah, that's his whole upbringing. He's like this every man who's grown up in Montana. And if it wasn't for his English teacher, I love this story. He had an English teacher who supported him and was like, no, go dude, go to college. And he goes to college and he falls in love with like painting and art. He tried to get into the drama club and they would not accept him. I kind of love that. Oh, but yeah, he really wanted to be a painter. And he didn't make it as a painter. His family moves to L.A. His dad was a judge, like, on the Montana Supreme Court. I forget why his family moved to L.A., but they moved to L.A. for, like, a family reason. And so he followed them out there. And some of his buddies from Montana were working on a film set as extras, and men, And he was like, well, I guess I could do that too. And he kind of falls into making movies. And I love this whole idea of like Gary Cooper wants to be a painter and instead ends up being Gary Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my dream's not totally fulfilled. But yeah, he, he gets into silent movies because of being able to do stunts like riding horses. Because he did that in Montana.
1: So I did not know that Gary Cooper was from Montana. But that makes sense. That's the thing in the 30s with all the, you know, MGM movie stars and the other studios churning out all these movies featuring... You know, people just like us. You, know, you know, like Clark Gable is from a small town in Ohio. Um, Carol Lombard's from Indiana. Like these people are just regular type folks. Gary Cooper from Montana. You know, they're not super glamorous, out of reach rich people. They're they're just like us, regular Americans.
0: Well, and you had mentioned the quintessential point in his career, which is when he does *Mr. Deeds Goes to Town*, um, which is a Frank Capra film. But it's like. The first of a series of films where they portray a new kind of hero, which is like the everyman hero. Gary Cooper is famous for playing the quote-unquote champion of the common man. Frank Capra said every line in his face spells honesty. He's one of those actors that like puts his personality on top of the character. Like it's not a Meryl Streep thing to do. Like Meryl Streep is going to become another person, right? But Gary Cooper is always going to be that like movie star of like, this is me naturally putting myself on top of this character.
1: And it's still fun to watch. That was the whole thing. Like you got pigeonholed into a role and it wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was like, yeah, Errol Flynn is going to play the adventurous swashbuckler and Gary Cooper is going to play, you know, the guy who could live down the street from you in your Midwestern town.
0: Who is incredibly tall and handsome, just by the way. Side note. Just a very handsome man who lives down the street from you and who might not be too bright, but is world
1: He has intuition. Intuition is such a big thing. Like, he knows what to do. He's got his gut feeling. I also do want to mention,
0: before we even had this talk, if you were like, Sarah Greenfield, what do you know about Gary Cooper? I'd be like, oh my god, dude had affairs so many affairs so like it's hilarious to me that frank capra's like honesty is written all over his face and dude is just like sleeping with everybody
1: oh my god okay so it's funny to me because we still all love him
0: i mean it sounds like he was of his time like all of these men of this time were kind of just a little bit terrible and that's just the thing you know But he he doesn't sound awful, like there are no really terrible stories about him other than he had so many affairs with so many women, um, especially famous ones like Ingrid Bergman, Clara Bow. So yeah, this, to me, if you were like, what do you know? I'd be like, that's what I know about Gary Cooper.
1: Was he like married and sleeping with other women or was he single and sleeping with married women? It was
0: a mix. So sometimes he was married while he was having an affair and sometimes they were married while he was having an affair with them. Mm. That's It was a lot of those kinds of situations over and over. Mm. Okay, so I do want to name maybe some of the movies that Gary Cooper was in for the people at home. Um, Also, do you have a favorite Gary Cooper movie, Sarah?
1: I like Meet John Doe. I like it. Very sweet. And of course, um, don't forget, Meet John Doe has the great Barbara Stanwyck in it as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like it. It's just, I think I talked about this on Sunset Boulevard, where it's like you have your favorites that are like a part of your heart and soul. And then you have movies where you're like, I liked that. That was good. It's not like, you know, a movie that makes up my essence, but I enjoyed it.
1: High Noon. High Noon is phenomenal.
0: That's on my list. High Noon, to me, I think that's probably my favorite movie Gary Cooper was in. It is such a mind-blowingly good movie, and you don't expect it. You're like, am I in for a Western? And then they're like, no, no, no. You're in for this suspenseful feminist masterpiece. Get ready. It's so good, you guys. I think we're going to do it on this show at some point. Um, But then I would say probably, this is very dorky, but I think my actual favorite, like if I just wanted to watch a movie on a Sunday or something, I would put in Ball of Fire.
1: Um,
0: <gasps> Ball Fire, I love Ball of Fire.
1: Ball of Fire is basically Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs.
0: It is. It is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but with Barbara stanwick and with Gary Cooper, and he would be one of the dwarfs. It's lovely.
1: I that was streaming for a while on Netflix. I feel like I watched it five times before it went away.
0: <laughs> also, Howard Hawks directed. So there you go. But yeah, that's my true Gary Cooper movie. But some of his other movies are. I think we actually named all of the ones that I have written down um high noon sergeant york mr deeds goes to town meet john doe ball of fire pride of the yankees today we live and um what's cool about gary cooper in general is he was a movie star for an insanely long time Mm -hmm. like a successful movie star he made movies from 1925 to 1961 and he was like a star the whole time like his career doesn't really ever lag or go down you know he was a major film star for that long he could do a lot of different genres i don't think he was necessarily the most talented like i said like meryl Streepy actor but he was very good at being like kind of honest in front of the camera with his emotions Mm -hmm. putting his personality on top of the character so that's what that's why he's so successful because he has the ability to do that
1: yeah absolutely
0: and again he's he is incredibly handsome it's just a fact there's a reason in putting on the ritz that they reference him trying hard to look like gary cooper super duper those are lyrics in a song i did not know that well sarah you did not go to musical theater camp for eight years of your life so why would you sadly know that?
1: i did not
0: so howard hawks is the director he's originally from indiana he has an insane amount of movies leonard malton the film critic uh called howard hawks the greatest american director who is not a household name he worked in all genres super versatile he covers it all so I would say these are like his films that he is famous for I feel like his first big screwball comedy is 20th century which if you've seen the musical on the 20th century that's what that is I actually Sarah we saw this movie together I don't love this movie as a movie but I love John Barrymore in it he is so fantastic but the movie itself I'm like whatever but him he's great so he does that he does his girl Friday oh my god he does ball of fire to have and have not Lauren Bacall's film debut The Big Sleep I Was a Male War Bride, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Rio Bravo, El Dorado, Red River, and then his earlier films are The Dawn Patrol, Scarface, Just By the Way, and The Crowd Roars. Oh, and I skipped Bringing Up Baby. Does Bringing Up Baby, which funnily enough, was a huge flop when it came out. And RKO fired him because it lost so much money. But then he went on. The next 11 films he made were all hits, every single one of them. So RKO, you messed up. You messed up, RKO. And he's also, while very much not a feminist, let's say, he also um, portrays a lot of strong female characters who become defined as the quote unquote Hoxian woman. So they're very like outspoken, bold, But in general, I don't feel like his films are necessarily feminist, but he does have some strong ladies representing in his films. Um, He never won an Academy Award competitively. Interesting. He won it. Um, honorarily in 1974, he was really good friends with John Ford, the director, and they're often compared to each other. Ah. And um, Orson Welles had a quote about like, Howard Hawks is great prose and John Ford is poetry. Hmm. (laughs) But they're kind of, they have similar film styles, but I prefer Howard Hawks because he has better female representation. And that is my personal stamp he was relevant for a very long period of time Mm -hmm. his backstory is a little obnoxious Uh, whenever you find out an obnoxious backstory you're like oh he did nothing wrong people at home don't get so scared he's from indiana his family's super rich they moved to pasadena he went to exeter he went to cornell uh he did fight in world war one like gary cooper just kind of randomly fell into hollywood stuff um he met a cinematographer victor fleming the famous cinematographer um he kind of met him victor fleming got him a job as a prop boy on a set uh and of a douglas fairbanks picture or something like that And he was very resourceful uh worked his way up but here's the thing he he wants to be a director and he wants to start his own production company and because he is rich he can do this Mm. so like Instead of just like working his way up, like through the system, he's like, no, I want to do my own production company and do all my own stuff. So like he uses his family's money to do that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying we have this narrative of like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But some people clearly have a fricking advantage. Mm -hmm. Like he gets to be the director that he is, which is a wonderful director because he has money, you know, like let's acknowledge that the playing field is not level. Let's just say that.
1: Yeah. He's not exactly Billy Wilder coming, you know, fleeing Nazi persecution in Germany, immigrating to a new country and starting over. Almost every week, I feel like I'm telling the story
0: of a director that fled Germany that was Jewish and that was Mm -hmm. like learning a new language, starting over, making incredible art. Like this guy's life is like, everything was going pretty good. I'm like a cushy white dude. Mm -hmm. And uh, things just kept going really good. Not that there's any problem with that. I'm just saying, let's acknowledge it, you know? Also, it's annoying because he's like buddies with like Hemingway and Faulkner. And I'm just picturing that like gross bro circle of like, dude, we're so smart dude, we're like the smartest. We're like, we're like so good at this. That's like what I picture. Back
1: from that era when like authors would come into Hollywood to write screenplays, like F. Scott Fitzgerald did uncredited rewrites on the Gone with the Wind script. Right. But so did everybody. Almost every single person of that time has uncredited Gone with the Wind on their resume. All the production notes from Sergeant New York are, I believe, at USC in their archives. And so you can Mm -hmm. like look through and see everything, you know, all the shoot days and all that stuff. And uh, apparently there were some days where Howard Hawks didn't show up to set because he was uh, off drinking and gambling at like Santa Anita racetrack or whatever. One of the things that I read
0: was one of his fellow college students was like, I don't remember him coming to class. I remember him drinking and partying a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So that really tracks.
1: I feel like that's what a lot of them did. Like there's so I feel like I've encountered that story so many times. Well, it's funny, you just reminded me one of the other things I
0: read was that the first time he got to direct when he was pretty young was because the director didn't show up for, work that day and he got to direct I think it was Mary Pickford in a scene in a film and of course it's uncredited because it was like the other director but I just think that's so funny that that's how his first gig happened then Mm -hmm. like because a director didn't show up and he would do that too yep also oh I'm so feminist I'm sorry I am but I'm like if a woman pulled that shit or if a person of color pulled that shit they'd be like yeah fired but like if a white man does it they're like no it's great you're a genius you're an artist you're brilliant Just want to put that up. Creative
1: process, bro. And I
0: already mentioned earlier, he's famous for like a no-nonsense directing style, enjoyable, straightforward, very actor-focused, very few takes. Um, so it ends up being pretty
1: fresh. It really seems like this movie was made for him then, you know, with his World War One experience, and also this being a very straightforward, uncomplicated, unsubtle story being told about an American hero. The Gary Cooper, Howard Hawks matchup seems pretty perfect for telling this story. And Gary Cooper won an Academy Award for this. He won best actor for this performance, Mm -hmm. which
0: leads me to this next point, Sarah. Let's discuss the accents, please. (laughs) He wins best actor for this, but oh my God, this whatever Southern accent this is that no one has the same accent and it's the I'm a coming, I'm a going accent. It was so distracting to me. First of all, that no one had a uniform accent. I'm going to make a proclamation right here, right now. I think that the only people that are allowed to use this accent, the I'm a gonna, I'm a dunna, I'm a whatever it is, are musicals. I think that unless you're a musical, you're not allowed to do that. I'm just saying it. Because all of the musicals that I can think of that are good have it and you don't care because it's very heightened. Like Oklahoma does it. Annie Get Your Gun does it. And I'm sorry the Native American representation in that is terrible. I'm so sorry. But like, besides that, yes, Annie Get Your Gun. And then um, like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Calamity Jane. I love all of these musicals and it's just stupid enough to work. But if you want me to take you seriously in a movie, this fake accent that I don't know that anyone really ever talked like this is very distracting.
1: The production worked directly with Alvin York, like and he would visit the set. He was the one who said, I want Gary Cooper to play me or else the deal's off. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wait, so did he really talk like that, Sarah? Is that real? I don't know. But I would think that if they had direct contact with him and listened to him speak and like Gary Cooper got to know him, I assume as part of, you know, researching the part, it doesn't make sense that they would be like, okay, well, even though I've met him and he sounds like this, I have decided that my Alvin York is going to sound like I'm a gonna, you know?
0: Well, that would be the writers, because I was picturing them writing it down that way. So it's like the actors saying the lines the way the writer wrote them, but then not doing an accent to it. It's just like, oh, I'm going to say the lines as they're written. And everyone's going to say them differently. And there's going to be no uniform accent.
1: He was a stickler for like having them show it the way it actually happened. And like Warner Brothers was really careful about getting releases from all the people, like, because everyone they mention is real. They're all real people, <gasps> those are all his like real. Um, you know, fellow soldiers and the commanding officers and all that. Buxton was his commanding officer. And Wait, Sarah, did he really then go to the Bronx? He rode on the subway. I love
0: that all that's real. I thought all of this was going to be so fake. So a lot of that stuff really was real. Well, and also
1: the guy who played his pastor, I think, was a stickler for wanting to be represented in an accurate and, you know, not insulting way. And so all that said, I feel like if there was that high a level of of dedication to truth and reality then maybe maybe he did actually talk like that but i don't know oh dear lord
0: (laughs) i think it wasn't so much about like getting the accent right as getting like we're country people Mm -hmm. right so it's like maybe they're like oh we'll let we'll let all this slide none of that stuff matters the people at home will get it Whereas like me today, I'm going like, oh my God, why do you all talk differently if you're from the same town and you've never met anyone else? So that's just me being so, so, so picky Um, and just their accent being really stupid Um, (laughs) and contributing to me being terrified of the mother, which again, I feel like we have not totally unpacked this. I want to get back to the mother. We will get to her, but please continue on educating me about this production and about the real Alvin C. York who had the great mustache. Like, what else do I
1: need to know, Sarah? Well, he didn't really come to prominence until a story was written about him in the Saturday Evening Post, which was like a huge magazine, news magazine, had a massive circulation. There was this writer who was kind of going through Europe, I think just after like Armistice Day, the end of World War One, And he was kind of collecting stories that he heard about combat experience and all that with the US soldiers. And he came across Alvin York from Fentress County, Tennessee. And he wrote a story that got published in Saturday Evening Post. It was just the story hit all of the quadrants, poor rural guy, poorly educated, but Christian God-fearing man pulled up by its bootstraps. Like it hit all the beats that you need to hit for a good old American story. And that kind of story I think was the, Probably what brought him to the attention of Jesse Lasky, the producer. And so Lasky wanted to make, this movie came out in 1941. Lasky started wanting to make a biopic about York in the 20s. And like he pushed for years and years and years wanting to make this movie. And York, like in the movie when they say like, oh, you can endorse this breakfast cereal and you can do this and this and make all this money based on your fame. And he was really like, "Mm, that doesn't feel right. I don't want to do that. I just want to go back to Tennessee. It took a long time to convince him. And he eventually was like, okay, you can make a movie. But Gary Cooper has to play me. He insisted on that. Even though Alvin York at the time that he was drafted was 29 years old and Gary Cooper is like 40. It's so weird seeing him like with the two actors who are supposed to be his brother and sister. They're not siblings. They're father and son. Like that's not his brother. The age gap is so massive. So the sister was June Lockhart, by the way. Oh.
0: And then the little boy, his name is Dickie Moore, child star. He was in Oliver Twist. But the reason I knew him was he's the kid in Out of the Past, the the deaf kid oh okay who like makes that movie he was he was in that the teenager
1: oh, i guess okay
0: but anyway so yes the age difference is hilarious but i do want to point out a positive thing is that the woman who played his mother actually could have been his mother she was 20 years older than him which i'm grateful for because as we know in movies now people like someone playing George Clooney's mother will be like 10 years older than yeah, him. Yeah, or like four. <laughs> or younger than yeah. him. So yes, I really appreciated that the mother actually was older than him and could have been his mother.
1: Gary Cooper was like, I don't know if I want to play this person who sounds impossible and way too good to be true and so he's like I don't know this seems questionable but he met with York and they you know talked and whatever and Gary Cooper was like okay I'm convinced now now I will play this part so wait then was York actually like a good guy he wasn't a dick or anything he was really for real a nice guy he would like go to set when they were filming even and like hang out and someone, I can't remember if it was an extra or if there's someone in the crew, but they asked him like, hey, so how many Jerry's did you actually murder? <gasps> and York started sobbing so hard he threw up. Like, he was so upset. So, like, there's a moment in the movie where they bring him back to the place where the machine gun nest had been, and there's, like, a two-star general asking him questions, like, where were you? And then, where are the Germans? And they ask him, how many Germans did you kill? And he kind of looks down and he goes, I don't know. Like, that's that's accurate. He was so upset. That was not the overriding concern. Adding notches to his tally of dead Germans, that was not the priority at all for him. Like, even though his bid to get conscientious objector status ultimately failed it's not like his conflict over killing people went away when that happened
0: i want to touch on religion for a little bit because i love that he was able to become a better person through religion like he really does become this kind man who is able to forgive people who have wronged him in the past and like build with them make better with them he, he clearly does become a better man because of religion but um i think The things that I I take pause with, I don't love um, certain religious things where they so heavily put that Satan stuff on you, where it's like, you got to do this. Satan's going to get you. That was Satan doing that out of you. Instead of like, first of all, you got to take responsibility for your own actions. You did that. Whatever thing happened, like you did that. (laughs) So own up to it. Don't be like, Satan did it. Satan made me do it. Um, I do appreciate that he did become better. But I think for me too, it's like, so... You're oh, you're reading Glennon Doyle right now. You're reading Untamed, yeah. right? She has – did you get to the part about religion yet? Uh, no.
1: I kind of put it aside for a bit. but.
0: So she has a quote about religion that it just sticks with me, and it's so good. She said, religion is a cup with which to hold God, but it is not God. Mm. And I love that idea because it's like – to me again sorry to the classic movie podcast i guess i'm sharing my spiritual beliefs but for me like yes i identify as jewish but i feel like i'm more culturally jewish like i'm i feel like i'm much more of a spiritual kind of person versus religious kind of person And to me, God is such a big, beautiful concept. Like, to me, God isn't like an old man in the sky judging me. It's like an energy. It's like a an energy that's bigger than myself, outside of myself, that is like this divine, loving energy and presence. Like, I feel it when I meditate. I, like, connect to it. Like, it's that kind of thing yeah, for me, right? Yeah. It's like this unlabelable kind of bigger, more beautiful thing. And so I love that idea of like religion being the cup to hold that. And I think for some people, there are so many good things about religion, but I get really scared about the dogmatic parts of religion Mm -hmm. and about the rules versus like the grace of it. And so I think like them pushing so hard for him to be religious and it being like, you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven and having that be the reason why you're religious versus like the actual good
1: things that can come out of it of being like a kind person following these values. Did
0: that make sense? Yeah.
1: Well, and also I think complicating matters is the fact that he apparently was a raging alcoholic. You know, they touch on that in kind of a stereotypical way in the film where he goes out drinking and whoring with his buddies and they get their guns and they're riding their horses, whatever. But like, I'm not 100% sure when Alcoholics Anonymous was started. But before that, alcoholism was not seen as an illness It was a choice you know it was like a personal failing so the fact that he was drinking so heavily for the people around him you know that was a choice he was making and the devil was making him do it and he had to say no to the devil so there was no compassion as far as like oh no he's an alcoholic he has a sickness It's more than just a personal failing. Like really rigid rules could work for someone like that, I guess. If you're like quitting alcohol cold turkey, maybe
0: having a very strict religious way of life might help you. I just get worried about like, people being harmed by the strict religious stuff yeah oh no yeah one thing i love about being jewish just in general is like a cool thing about being jewish two cool things one there is no recruitment no this is not a religion where we we are recruiting anybody like you have to try three times to be jewish Mm -hmm. (laughs) you get turned away you know and two um there's no heaven or hell so you're doing this because you ultimately want to have a more fulfilling or meaningful life. And I'm not saying this about all sects of Judaism, just like all religions, they're like the crazy, like super dogmatic, super sexist, super intense Jewish people. But like, I grew up reformed Jewish. I didn't know what hell was. Thank God. I feel bad for kids that think they're like, oh no, I told a lie I'm going to hell. That's, that's really, yeah. that's really something. That's really scary. So. I don't know. I like the idea of like you're doing this to have a meaningful life and to like have a more lovely life, essentially, a life full of values. Um, And so I think that's like the good stuff that can be grasped from religion versus like the very intense um, rules about you have to be this way, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to hate these people, (laughs) and you also have to recruit everybody, and everybody has to believe what you believe because what you believe is the only thing.
1: Those are the things that scare me about religion. No, yeah, definitely. <laughs> religion used as a weapon rather than a source of peace and calm.
0: When you get the sense through Sergeant York that it is used peacefully and beautifully. It's not used necessarily to harm people, but I,
1: I don't know. Obviously, it could have been... Twisted a little bit to make a movie feel good. And yeah, I get the impression that he was a good guy. The root of true faith is love. And it's not persecuting people who are different or persecuting people outside your faith. It's just love. Love thy neighbor, the golden rule, all that. And so I think that York does exemplify that. Absolutely. Well, and you can see it when he
0: meets the new people. When he meets people that are different than him, his first reaction isn't to be like, I don't like you because you're different. It's like, oh, this is interesting oh, that's what it's like for you? Well, here's what it's like for me. He's more curious about other people as opposed to being fearful of them.
1: He was a member of a regiment that was called the All-America Regiment. So when all these men were drafted into the army for World War I, Most of them were all, you know, from like the same neighborhood. Like there's a regiment called the Statue of Liberty Regiment. And it was all these tough, like Italian guys from Brooklyn and the Bronx. And my great grandfather was in the 78th Lightning Division, which was all men from like New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. So even though you're going in this army, you might not know a whole lot of people. You're surrounded by men who are your neighbors, who grew up the next town over, who had similar life experiences, come from similar backgrounds and all that. And I think they really did make an effort to um, have that be the case across the board, but not in Sergeant York's regiment. So his regiment was called the All-America Regiment because they were from all over the country. It was the 82nd the division he belonged to and they were pulled from all over. Like he was from Tennessee, he was with guys who were from the Bronx. Yeah, that's where the nickname came from. And so that kind of thing did probably lead to conflict as far as like he's a country hick. They kind of lean into that in the movie. Like he's some backwoods hick who's like just barely literate and kind of you know talks in that aw shucks I'm a gonna accent and
0: well and doesn't have access to like even news like in that early scene they talk about how oh that newspaper's three days old and only one guy in the town is getting a newspaper every now and then like they don't really have a perception of the outside world as much because they're so just in their own town and their
1: own people So he's suddenly, you know, thrust into the situation where he's surrounded by men from all over the country. All different life experiences and different backgrounds. Even though you can have
0: different backgrounds and be from different places, if you make a turkey call, someone will pop their head up and you can shoot that. That was real. That was
1: real. No, Sarah. No. Really? Okay, the scene where York is explaining to the men... He's got he like lines up the I think they're bullet cartridges. He lines them up and he's like, all right, these five guys are coming at you. Which one do you shoot first? And he tells them you shoot the one in the back first, and then you work your way forward. And it's exactly the way you hunt turkeys. That is exactly where he got it from, from hunting turkeys in Fentress County, Tennessee. Aim for the one in the back first, and that is exactly. But what what about that gobble thing,
0: Sarah? That's what I don't understand. He goes so. First of all, they show the turkey shooting early on. There's a lot of themes throughout that they keep bringing in. So they're like Daniel Boone. They keep talking about Daniel Boone. And who do you think you are? Daniel Boone? Yes, he does think, you, like, yes, he becomes <laughs> a hero, just like Daniel Boone. And then they do, like, turkeys come up a lot, too. And um, he's doing, like, a turkey shooting thing. And the turkey is very clearly a puppet. It's very clearly a <laughs> puppet um, that they're, like, putting up behind a wood board, and everybody's missing it. He's the only man that goes up and goes, like, and makes like a turkey sound and the turkey responds and he shoots the turkey but then later on when he is in Germany fighting in World War One, he makes the turkey sound and a German pops his head up and he shoots him and I was like this is disturbing
1: but also comedic a little
0: bit and also did that really happen?
1: <laughs> that I don't know about but I mean imagine you're in a machine gun nest and all of a sudden you hear a turkey wouldn't you be like what the hell? Insane also, I feel like we haven't really talked about
0: the woman that plays his wife. Like, she's your kind of your and woman, Gracie Williams, played by Joan Leslie. She was in Yankee Doodle Dandy, Rhapsody in Blue, The Sky's the Limit. Those are some of her famous films. And yeah, she's, she's just a fun addition. I don't think she does too much, but I just wanted to kind of call her out and be like, hey, we see you. I like that you're strong and smart yeah. and that you did not take his bullshit and that you kind of helped him to grow and change based on him seeing what a life with you would be like. Yeah. And that you're not tolerating his nonsense. The sweaty kiss was a little gross, just saying.
1: York also was very clear on who he wanted to be cast as his wife, too. Really? He didn't pick Joan Leslie specifically like he did Gary Cooper to play himself. He said to the studio, no oomph girls to play my wife. He wanted a very sweet an innocent, uh, you know, ingenue type to play his his wife. But she comes off as like
0: sweet, smart, strong. Mm -hmm.
1: Like, yeah, she totally gives us that
0: vibe. And I think you can tell sometimes in her head, she's rolling her eyes when she has to say the stupid lines and like, he had done called me. Like I literally could see in her eyeballs being like, I have to say this, (laughs) ugh, fine. Gotta put in the time before I can get that Oscar nomination. But I do like that she is a woman who thinks for herself, makes choices for herself. She could have been, like, a throwaway character, and they didn't make her a throwaway character, so I appreciate
1: that. She really did play a part in York ultimately turning his life around. You know, moving away from being a raging alcoholic to a responsible man who was a pillar of the community.
0: Well, I mean, her and lightning striking him, obviously. Obviously. As one does. (laughs) Yeah. So they end up having eight children, and I guess, like, a very happy marriage. And he came from a family—so in the movie, he only has, like, two siblings— But I guess in real life, he had like 11. He was one of 11 or he had 11 siblings.
1: He was the third. The two oldest had already, you know, moved out and gotten married and all that. And I think they didn't even live in the area anymore. They'd moved farther, so.
0: Why would you move from that area that's totally restricted and far away from everything? (laughs) Scratching my head on that one. (laughs) I think it would stress me out to live in a place where you couldn't, like, get a doctor or you couldn't, like, I don't know, to be that far from people, I guess.
1: I think that would scare me. Yeah, but we're city people. I know. I'm such a city person. It's There's certain things about that life that I can't even fathom. But I mean... There's people who live that way and they like it and they that's the way they want to live their life.
0: The nature's beautiful. The community was lovely with each other, I thought. Yeah. There wasn't even that much judgment. Like there was some, but I felt like everyone, even when he was an alcoholic, everybody still kind of got along.
1: They refrain from calling him out on it because of his mother. And his mother is such a God-fearing Christian woman. She's in that first scene when they're, you know, in the church trying to have a prayer meeting and then he's outside with his buddies shooting up a tree trunk.
0: So you brought her up naturally, Sarah. Let's get into this woman.
1: The actress, her name
0: is Margaret, is it Witcherly? Witcherly? Sure. I don't know. She was a stage actress. She was in White Heat, Random Harvest, and The Yearling, Sarah. She terrified me. Okay, I'm shocked to hear that. Why? It wasn't her part. Her part was totally lovely and fine and cool. This actress in particular feels like she should be in a horror film. She is, cre- she, she reminded me of, you know that, I, I don't watch scary movies, but you know like The Nun? She reminded me of like The Nun. Oh the first shot that we see of the congregation is like her, and her face is like, I'm going to kill all of you. Like she has this very intense, creepy way about her. She says all of her lines in the creepiest possible way that she could. I just got like a major paranormal horror <laughs> vibes from her throughout. <laughs> She terrified me. There was even a line that she I, she said once that I wrote down. I was like, you could not have said that scarier. You were terrifying.
1: But yeah, there's just something so creepy about that actress. See, I did not get that vibe from her when I was actually sitting and watching it. But I can see how you could make those conclusions about her. Yeah.
0: I wrote, Ma terrifies me. All of her line readings are like a haunted house. But she's like, don't be afraid. She's just... Girl, you should have made your living in the 60s, 70s, and 80s horror films. You are terrifying, just naturally. Your presence is haunting. That's how I felt about that. So she's haunting, and then her son George is cool as a damn cucumber, like fifteen-year-old Marlon Brando. Like, what? What are you gonna say about it? I'm gonna be in a gang. I'm cool. The <laughs> Those l- the two brothers, like
1: carrying around a rifle that's taller than he is. I guess she was trying to evoke like this woman who's lived this tough, tough life. The Yorks are not bottomland farmers; they're topland farmer or upperland. I can't remember how they put it.
0: They called it topland, and I was like, oh my god, these are this is like so homoerotic right now.
1: <laughs> top land is where all the like rocky bad soil is that doesn't get enough water so it's really tough to grow crops up there so they're just like hard scrabble poor farmers and nothing they do can get them ahead she talks about how her husband alvin's father tried to buy bottom land and he was never quite able to make it it's because it's so hard to do and she just is like burnt out she's told she had 11 kids Everyone is barely educated because they all had to leave school to work on the farm and they're all still poor, even with all that. So she's just like, I'm over it, son. I also felt like when they shot her from the side,
0: she wasn't as menacing. There was something about a full frontal shot of her like when she would speak specifically. She just, I don't know, came off as creepy. But I do see... I know that was not the intention. (laughs) I feel so bad. It is not the actress's fault. That was just what she invoked from me. And yes, they do portray that all of that that you're saying as the character. They really do get that across. I was just being like very ridiculous.
1: As an actress, she made some
0: interesting choices. That's a great way of putting it. The two scenes that were my favorites personally. One is the echoes. There's this moment when he's with his younger brother and he's working so hard and he's having doubts about things and he just shouts out into the void. like. I can't do this. What am I going to do? Like, I don't know what to do. And his voice is echoing and coming back at him. And to me, that was just such a relatable moment. I think everyone has felt that way at some point or another. Because he's been working so hard and he's short of the money that he needs for his land. And it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm going to get this money. I just, I love that. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know. But like, I'm just going to settle in and keep going. It wasn't a giving up moment. It was just a, almost a reaffirming. Like, I don't know where I'm going to get it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying.
1: And the echoes that come back to him are also very telling. See, shut. Like, I can't do it. And the words that echo back at him are, do it. Do it. Like, you know, don't give up now. Keep going. Keep going. (gasps) That makes that moment even better. I wasn't even picking up on that. I mean, it it wasn't every single time, but that was the one that stood out to me.
0: And then, obviously, the other special moment is... I love that we live inside of his head when he's having this inner battle of thou shalt not kill versus like i want to do right by people and by my country um and so you hear the opposite voices of the people in his head and they end up boiling it down to god country god country and it's the preacher saying it and it's his captain saying it so the preacher says god the captain says country He's sitting on this beautiful mountain, looking out at this beautiful scene, backlit gorgeously with his dog. And it's just like such an Americana moment. Mm -hmm. It's such like a, it felt very iconic to me. And in my head, I was like, you can have them both. I almost was waiting for him to like look up at the camera and be like, God and country. I thought that was a very beautiful moment. Really well done. We've talked about this movie not being very subtle, but even for not being subtle, there's still something. I loved the idea of someone saying his work is like good prose. Because, yeah, it's not subtle, but it's still good. It still hits
1: home, and it's still artistic. Absolutely. And that may have been a conflict that a lot of those soldiers had, just because, like, what were they fighting for? There was no, like, American democracy wasn't under threat. It was all, like, stuff going on in Europe. Over there, like the George M. Klan song says, I'm sure a lot of young men were in that position of, do I fight? Should I The promises that Wilson had made about the number of men and the number of weapons and all this stuff that they were going to be shipping over to Europe, they were so extravagant. And it was just such a rush trying to get everything together that there were U.S. soldiers who did not even get their guns issued to them until they were in France. Like while they were in the U.S. at their forts, which many of them had to build the forts like they would report for duty and find just like an empty field they would march around on the parade grounds holding plywood cutouts in the shape of rifles because they didn't have them yet the production you know hadn't ramped up enough to the point where they could actually issue every man his rifle do you know the death count I know it was insanely high I don't off the top of my head no um let's see okay there are like 20 million people died overall in World War 1. 20 million 20 million deaths and 21 million wounded. Oh my god. So the 20 million number includes about 10 million civilians. So American losses in in World War 1 were approximately 116,000 deaths and 320,000 sick and wounded. And that's just for a year. Yeah. That includes I think some men who got Spanish flu. Which was like incidental to World War One, of course. Um, I researched this because I, like I said, I, my great grandfather was in World War One. He was in Mozart Gun, like Alvin York. They were not in the same division, but they were within a couple miles of each other. Like I saw a map once showing where Alvin York was, you know, where he took out that machine gun nest and then where my great grandfather was. And it was, you know, it was all right in the same area. But yeah, so the men were poorly trained. The other problem is that Pershing was the general of all the American expeditionary forces in France. He was in charge. He refused to be a sidekick to the um, British and French forces. The problem is that Pershing had a very outdated idea of what combat was like. He was an old school soldier. When he was coming up, war was rifles with bayonets fixed and it was horses and wagons bringing in supplies and all this stuff. World War I is like, I think you could argue it's the first modern war. And so imagine all these American soldiers coming in with their rifles that they barely knew how to use. They have some ammunition when the supply chains are, you know, not stopped and bottlenecked. They have their bayonets and they maybe have some grenades And they're up against Germans who have covered the fields with barbed wire. They have grenades, bombs, mustard gas. They've got planes flying overhead, firing on everybody. They have machine guns that just like let loose and they can kill like dozens of soldiers in one full swoop with those. I mean, they were just totally outgunned. Pershing had this idea that like, you know, an American... Boy with a rifle running forward towards a German has to win because he's an American and he's got that it factor that the Germans just don't have. And so that whole scene in the movie where, you know, there's that German machine gun nest and all the U.S. soldiers are start charging towards them and the Germans are like, oh no, the Americans are coming. I mean, the Germans were not afraid. You know, yes, at first it was like, okay, we've been in this war for a while. We're getting tired out. And now there's all these fresh troops coming in. Uh-oh. But once they saw how poorly trained the U.S. soldiers were, they were like, oh, these guys are barely more than cannon fodder. So many men died that did not have to. The actors
0: that they cast as the Germans were often skinnier and smaller or very handsome. Like that German general has like a very nice face and he's very put together. And I was just noticing that they're trying to make the Americans look like beefier and stronger um, in casting.
1: Before the meuse Gun campaign, like the Germans were in the mindset of one more solid push and we have won the war. This territory they're fighting in the meuse Gun is the Meuse is a river um, and the Argonne is a forest. And so it's this, like, beautiful picturesque valley, which is still to this day scarred by all the trenches that were dug.
0: Sarah, I just realized something. Sergeant York comes from a valley, and then he goes to a valley in Europe and succeeds there. It's a valley to a valley tale. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I'm really grateful you can pronounce that name because I did not know how to say it. I still am not am not
1: saying it on my own <laughs> podcast because I'm scared to get it wrong. Mozart. The weather was horrendous. Like there was rained out, in fog impeded a lot of the visibility. That affected the supply lines, like I said. So they had trucks that were supposed to be coming in with uh, you know, food and ammunition for the men, but the rain would churn up the roads and just turn them into pure mud pits. And so like, there was bottlenecking and all this stuff. And so the men are poorly trained. They're poorly equipped. They're just being thrown at these lines of entrenched German soldiers who just mow them down. In that respect, York stands out not only because he had this, did this amazing thing where he kept his cool and was able to capture over 130 Germans, but he knew how to shoot. And so many of those men did not, they were just like thrown out there and told like, go get them soldier, you know? So in the divisions that were pulled from more rural parts of the country, like there were sprinkled throughout men like York who did know how to shoot and did have some know-how. And whenever the Germans encountered them, there was the sense like, oh wait, we were wrong. We thought these guys were a little more than cannon fodder. This guy actually can shoot. Uh-oh. And then you get, there's some worry there.
0: And what I do think is interesting about York is I feel like a lot of times in the action hero thing, he's going to be like, yeah, I know I'm great at shooting. I'm the best and I'm the top. And so what's appealing about York for everybody is that he's not like some egotistical, like macho jerk. He's like, I don't really believe in this. I'm doing it because I have to. I really just want to like, live better values than this. So I think that's also what makes it more special than your average basic like action kind of movie without a lot of soul.
1: What he did was really remarkable. And the fact that he's awarded the Medal of Honor in the end, think of all the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have served and defended our country. Only 3,500 of them have been awarded Medals of Honor. The events of that day are just like breathtaking. And the fact that he was able to keep his cool despite his deep deep concerns with shooting and killing he protected his men he took down an entire machine gun nest that could have killed so many other American soldiers cheesier for the movie but I that should not detract at all from the the heroism of that that act and that day I do want to talk about one more quote from the film that I really liked the preachers
0: kind of trying to convert him to get him into religion so he's like hey do you see that tree over there the preacher says this to sergeant york you can't see the roots but they are holding it up just the same how this beautiful big tree has these really deep roots and he he makes the comment about your roots have to be something outside of yourself Mm. like i i really just loved that idea it's like living a selfish existence versus like living this more deep fulfilling meaningful existence and they apply it to religion but it can be applied to like many other things but I yeah. think that's like the way his character lives. He has these deep roots.
1: Yeah, I, I liked that part too. Like you said, I was in the service of trying to get him to start going to church, but <laughs> the stuff he was saying is more universal than that.
0: So yeah, Sarah, this was a great discussion about Sergeant York. I loved it. Uh, we're going to move on really quick to the double feature section. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I chose this film... Because um, I know it's going to be coming out like the day after President's Day. And I wanted to watch something I hadn't seen that I heard was good that kind of felt like, ah, patriotic a little bit. Yeah. So that's why I picked this one. And it totally hit all of those marks. I think this actually might pair nicely with like another 40s biopic. So like Pride of the Yankees, I was actually thinking would be a good one. An American oh, yeah. Hero Comes Up From Nothing Faces Adversity. It doesn't end super happily because, you know, Lou Gehrig gets Lou Gehrig's disease, but... Spoiler alert. But I, I felt like that actually might feel nice to watch with this. Yeah. Um, I also wrote down like Yankee Doodle Dandy might be something fun to watch with this. George M. Cohen, or even like Edison the Man might be fun to watch with this. Um, those are all kind of like solid American biopics that have this vibe about it. And then if you're going for like World War One. The Dawn Patrol, also directed by Howard Hawks, kind of took a lot of his experiences um, in World War One as a flight instructor. I personally have never seen it, but it sounds like it would parallel with this. So there's that. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front is an obvious kind of you could watch that. It's also incredibly depressing, you know. So just All Quiet on the Western
1: Front is phenomenal. I was blown away the first time I saw it because I was not expecting it to be that good yeah. so you could watch that i'm
0: just saying viewers at home tonally it's a little different so oh and then i would say tonally uh mr deeds goes to town or mr smith goes to washington those would also both be great double features with this one has gary cooper 100 percent. when we watched on this show with my, my, my brother we watched mr smith goes to washington
1: yeah i went in a little different direction i was thinking a good pairing with this, if you're in the mood for Americana and American history and American figures, Young Mr. Lincoln with Henry Fonda. Well, Sarah, that's
0: almost what we watched instead of this. Like, it was between those two movies.
1: I love Young Mr. Lincoln.
0: Well, we might watch it next President's Day. Um, but yeah, those all all of those double features, totally valid, totally work, are good, solid movies to watch. Yeah, Sarah, do you have anything you
1: want to add before we go? I was so excited when you said you wanted to watch this because York was at Mazar gun. Part of the is our gun campaign where so many Americans died. My great-grandfather was there too. He was one of the lucky ones. He made it home. A lot of those starry-eyed doughboys did not come back home. Yeah.
0: So, so kind of putting – it's hard to not sound callous on a podcast when you're talking about these kinds of things, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's – I think that's important too. I, I was about to make my joke of, like, when we started, instead of Sergeant York, I was like, Sergeant, you're boring. <laughs> But then it really grew on me, and I'm so glad that we watched this. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did enjoy it. I had a good time. National Film Registry selected it for preservation. So, yeah. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Sarah, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Sarah Royce. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TalkClassicToMe. Thanks for listening.